Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Scott Shepard, and uh, I am the host of the City's First podcast. We focus on urbanism, decarbonization, as well as all forms of mobility and digitalization. I'm here today with Lucas Neckerman, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Split and a strategic advisor and consultant to all forms of mobility, as well as different uh, strategic entities. I want to welcome Lucas here today. Uh, we're going to be talking about many different topics in the ecosystem, specifically related to super apps, mobility as a service, as well as digital connectivity and artificial intelligence. So Lucas, welcome to our podcast. It's real a pleasure to have you. This is our second episode and we're really excited to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive into where we're at in 2022 in this disruptive market. Great to be here, Scott. Absolutely. It is uh, a crazy time in the world of mobility and data and cities and all of these things as we come out of a pandemic and uh, are reimagining the world around us a little bit and uh, hopefully taking some of the learnings that we've uh, gathered over the last two years to reevaluate again uh, how we want to live and move around our cities. Taking stock. Taking stock is the word. This uh, new world that we're in right now. So with that, we're just going to jump into the first question here, the first uh, topic, and let's uh, get started. So uh, kind of a topic I know that's uh, a bit near and dear to your heart, and you have a real significant experience for you know several decades now, is around the automotive industry and OEMs. And I would like to talk about kind of a trend that we've seen uh, pre, during, and even now post-COVID, which is this kind of strategic shift in the automakers in the shared mobility ecosystem, whether it's mobility as a service, uh, on-demand mobility, micro-mobility, and other offers. So just to kind of get your quick take um, and crystal ball, what do you think is next? What's the power play for OEMs and shared mobility, given their um, kind of uh, shift away from this domain, uh, let's say, starting in 2019? So it took the automakers quite a while to even figure out what mobility as a term meant. Uh, and they threw a lot of things into the term mobility, and I think that's fair. Uh, I, uh, I I called it the three zeros. You will remember some uh, eight years ago, zero emissions, zero accidents, zero ownership, uh, so electrification, autonomous, uh, and, and shared mobility. And perhaps just very quickly, we go through those zero emissions. Look, the ship has sailed. Um, it's crystal clear, um, and they're making decent progress, the legacy automakers, but only after they got a swift kick in the hindsight from uh, from some new entrants. Um, you know, the Tesla market cap is um, uh, higher than the next nine or 10 uh, other OEMs. And there are certain reasons for that. Tesla is much more than a car company, as we well know. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, some 40% of new vehicles this quarter are going to be electrified in, in Europe. Uh, and if you had told somebody that five years ago, they would have said you were crazy. And in fact, they did. They told you or me, yes, <laughs> those of us who, who had dissipated. I saw your post trend, yesterday. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, it must be outrageous. Uh, so that's that's the one point. The second uh, is autonomous. Um, OEMs have a an inherent, a sadly inherent disincentive to promote autonomous vehicles for two reasons. One is... So much downstream revenue is, you know, made from fixing cars, spare parts, repairs. Now, not to be a cynic here, but uh, at the very least, they need to reevaluate uh, what happens when cars crash less. 
uh, they need to preserve the dealership network that fixes those vehicles. Right. But but even more so, and this gets us then into the shared piece, fully autonomous vehicles, so level four and up, are more likely to be shared, right? If you're getting used to sitting in the back of a vehicle, uh, as perhaps you already do through ride pooling or ride hailing, um, you know, you don't care anymore what's on the front uh, of the vehicle. And you probably also don't care if there are two or three other people in the vehicle with you. So that decreases the overall need for, for, for you know, cars to be sold. So again, that takes us to shared mobility. And here, broadly speaking, OEMs have, have, have not succeeded. I mean, kudos to Freenow for achieving what it has. Uh, it's a very good, uh, credible um, uh, shared mobility play uh, in Europe. Uh, but it's still nowhere close to a Grab or a Cream or an Uber. Um, others, uh, Stellantis, yes, the mobility operations are growing. Clearly lack lacks still a little bit of definition. And everybody else, Toyota, Ford, GM, I mean, they've failed miserably and exited, broadly speaking, the shared mobility space. Because it's not in their core expertise. Shared mobility takes operational excellence and it takes knowing the customer knowing and understanding the end customer. OEMs are not B2C companies. Right. OEMs historically are B2B companies. Mm -hmm. They sell to leasing companies. They sell to financing companies. They sell to a dealer network who then has the contact to the end customer. But the OEM itself doesn't really have enough knowledge about its end customer to serve him or her well. And that's one of the reasons they've uh, they failed. And the other reason is, of course, uh, again, they don't have an inherent interest in making shared mobility work other than to sell vehicles. That is as long as they keep defining themselves as an automaker. And frankly, um, that's what their shareholders are expecting of them. And the reason for that is simple. Shared mobility compare, uh, competes in a space that is subsidized. Right. Indeed. Um, yes. Public transport is a yeah. heavily subsidized in, uh, uh, industry. So if all of a sudden you're, whether it's car sharing or bike sharing or scooters or ride hailing, whatever it is, uh, first of all, there's a startup cost, which is which is <laughs> uh, fairly high and means that you're going to be carrying losses for at least the first couple of years. Second of all, even at at a steady state, uh, this is not going to give you the same return as you know, selling big hunks of steel and glass. Uh, and that's what the shareholders expect. Um, and, and, and that means that there's an inherent disincentive for OEMs and a, and, a, and a disconnect as well for OEMs to do well with insured mobility. Yeah, and that was that uh, kind of uh, tipping point, I would say around 2018 or that uh, <laughs> come to Jesus moment, 2019, where we saw this disinvestment even before COVID, and then just accelerated during the pandemic. And that's where we're at today. That's where we're at right now. So those are really good points. Yeah. Um, so well well, well said. Um, so the next question, I think, is a little bit closer to what you're focused on right now at Split, which is yeah. super apps. And you mentioned a few. So basically, how can super apps help to supercharge public transport? So obviously, super apps have many different use cases from consumer goods, retail, as well as personal mobility, private mobility, but fitting in public transport into this ecosystem, how, what is the potential for super apps to uh, help supercharge public transport in this post-COVID city, the post-COVID world? Right, right. Well, 
the key, the key thing that a super app can do for the end user is to make their lives easier, right? Especially if you're traveling cross-border. So let's assume I go to Lisbon or Barcelona or Munich, all right? Now I'm familiar, very familiar with Munich, but still, it's quite a challenge maneuvering their tickets. Now, you're standing at the airport, you've got a single ticket, you've got a short ride ticket, you've got a strike ticket, you've got a day ticket. You've got a ticket for the inner city, you've got a ticket for the outer city. You've got a ticket to and from the airport. And each of these, of course, varies by age, or if I'm a student, or if I'm a senior. Then on top of that, there are six zones of travel, and the cost of the ticket depends on how many zones I travel. This is one of the absurdities of public transport that we've created this, this ridiculous barrier to entry. This is just to get onto a tube, a subway from the airport. And that's a challenge for mobility as a service. It's a mm -hmm. challenge for public transport operators, very, very generally speaking, but it's a challenge that super apps could uh, make go away. Now, the Munich example, that's one city, one country for one day. Right, yeah. Now, what if I travel quite a bit? For every city, I'm not going to learn the entire fare structure or the ticketing structure in public transport. And I'm not going to download a separate app every time I want to use a scooter or a bicycle uh, or car sharing or, or ride hailing, right? So the advantage of a super app, and this could be a mobility as a service app that actually covers multiple mm -hmm. cities, which is which is a separate story. It's a separate. Uh, but it could also be <laughs> it could also be a fintech a fintech brand. It could be a bank app. It could be right. a travel app. It mm -hmm. could be exactly that same app that you used to book the flight ticket or to book your hotel uh, to get to Munich or mm -hmm. Lisbon or Barcelona. Now, within the super app, they know who you are. Right? That means that they can pre-populate most of the fields in an online order or an online ticket. Second, they have your payment details. No entering credit card details every single time that you mm -hmm. want to you know, take a ride. Third, they're fully integrated. Again, no new logins, no new uh, apps to use, no uh, you know, code yeah. that gets sent to my phone, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Yeah. For, yeah. Fourthly, they bring the users. Now, when we talk about super apps, certainly from a split perspective, we're talking about apps that have a billion or more users. WeChat, Alipay, these are apps that have half billion or more daily users, not downloads or monthly active users, daily users, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's simply uh, uh, awesome. You know, you can't copy. There's not there's not a single mobility as a service app. There's not a single other single use app out there that can copy that model. And that means that they come with an inherent demand platform. And, and, and that demand platform means, hey, uh, every supply partner should want to interact with that. They should want to get in uh, into Alipay or Grab or WeChat or any other super app, right? Um, the, my, you know, my favorite example of this is is, is Amazon. I mean, I mean, how many retail apps do you actually still have on your phone? 
None. <laughs> not, right? not for me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You've got, I don't you've got one. one. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because Amazon has has mastered the long tail, right? You can find pretty much anything on the if you have an obscure hobby and you need a spare part for that hobby. You're just gonna go to Amazon. Your first point of reference. Yeah, it's gonna sure. go on Amazon, of course. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. I'm not going to Lisbon every day. I'm not going to Munich every day. I'm, I'm, I might go, you know, every few months, maybe one, only once a year. So I'm not mm-hmm. going to get a separate app for each of those things. Right. So this is this is the long tail. As long as I'm integrating all of these different things into one app that already has all of my information, all of my login details, payment details and uh, and all of that, then um, why wouldn't I use that app? So that that's true. Um, just to kind of add to that, I know we have another question, but um, where do you see the integration of public transport in that uh, kind of uh, user flow or user journey so that it kind of completes that door to door experience, if that's the preference of the consumer to maybe not use private mobility, or at least use that as one leg of their journey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the apps that we use for journey planning, you know, the city mappers, the Apple maps, mm-hmm. the Google maps, the Rubits, they're, they're fantastic. They yeah. will tell me how to get from A to B, no question about it. And, and, and they're amazing at what they do, but that's only half the battle, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing how I get from A to B is only half the battle. If I still have the hurdle and I have to add on an extra 12 minutes because I'm standing in front of a ticket, uh, a machine, uh, yes. in order to get a paper ticket to, mm-hmm. to you know, get a, then, then all of the journey planning in the world makes no sense to me. So mm-hmm. it's about simplifying the and, and lowering the hurdle of use um, uh, that public transport has inexplicably really <laughs> put onto itself. They have not you done know? themselves favor. Uh, the, the, you know, you know the tech yeah. the, the tech world the, the tech world comes from how many clicks to payment or how many clicks to completion, right? Yeah. Um, and and, and public transport is, I don't know, 20, 30 clicks, whereas most things you can buy with, you know, four to four to six clicks, right? Or you can set up an account. So, so we need to lower the hurdle to get more people into public transport. I think that's you and I, we both share that goal. We want to well, that's get an people into You're, active is- modes of, mm-hmm. tra- uh, yeah, mm-hmm. active mm-hmm. modes of transport, um, mm-hmm. get people out of privately owned vehicles or single single occupancy vehicles um, and, and and anything that we can do to make that happen by you know putting it all in one app and reducing that hurdle to use well you know bingo yeah 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 it's just it's an enabler for um, for a nudge nudging and a modal shift absolutely. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Um, so the next question, I just want to talk about an article I just shared with you. Actually, it was just on City Lab. We just chatted about this before the call here. It's really interesting. And it leads to kind of just the, let's say, uh, you know, what we call in the United States, the, the right of way or the real estate, the, the public domain of sidewalks and streets and how uh, the, the built environment for cities are starting to transform. Maybe not necessarily become privatized, but becoming seen as a potential um, asset that is a opportunity. And this comes back to how we view deliveries and parking and how we've subsidized and incentivized the uh, public space and curbs in the uh, domain of uh, private cars and uh, automobiles. So I guess the question though is in this, this article, which was really interesting, talks about this, 
is, uh, is data the new gold and how much can we monetize the curve? Meaning that mm -hmm. is this an opportunity for cities to start actually charging the real cost for curbside parking and as well as deliveries? And what is kind of the right balance of many of the new private sector, um, let's say venture capital funded um, startups and technology, uh, venture technology uh, entities that are trying to, you know, um, capture the space? Mm -hmm. So let's start with how much is curb space worth? Obviously, Donald Shoup did you know amazing work on this uh, many many years ago, decades ago, um, but cities still haven't acted upon that. They don't properly value and put a cost on the curb. In most cities, you or I, we can get a resident or a commercial parking permit for a pittance, twenty dollars a month. I could park a seven meter long camper van on that space and store my stuff. Maybe I can even rent it out to store other people's stuff. Maybe even I wanna make this to my, uh, make this into my home office. Maybe even I could rent out co-working spaces. You know, I'm paying the city $20 a month rent for valuable real estate. It's absurd. Mm -hmm. The same ground space for a building would cost me hundreds to rent, if not more. If not more. So we, 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 we really don't value parking spaces in our cities sufficiently. And mostly because councils are afraid, right? They're afraid of, you know, shaking things up. They're afraid of the residents and the, uh, and, and, and the, you know, and the companies and the businesses around, but they really shouldn't be right? Because the councils, they don't have a problem in overcharging car sharing or bike sharing operators. They're the new kids on the block. So mm -hmm. they get a higher cost than the actual resident in, in spite of the fact that they're creating a social good. And that social good is removing privately owned vehicles from the street. So, you know, if we can reduce the number of resident parking spots dramatically, then I wouldn't even have a problem with pickup and drop off fees for ride hailing. If I have, you know, those on uh, every block, if I can have, you know, car sharing spots, if I can have bike sharing and scooter sharing spots, uh, every block or every other block. Um, uh, because getting back to what you were saying earlier, Scott, using the word nudge, you know, it pushes, it gently <laughs> nudges residents into scooters, bikes, or other shared modes of transport. And the, the, the way to do that is to price those spots the right way. Now, your other question was, who's responsible for that? Is it the, you know, is it private companies or is it cities? Well, the reason I gave that example earlier on, you know, renting out a camper van is that would be the equivalent of me renting the space from the city and then remarketing it for its proper value. Mm -hmm. If the city is undervaluing an asset that it has, then hey, guess what? Private, uh, private enterprise can come in and, and value that asset for what it's worth. Price it accordingly if they're going to come in. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's, that's a good way to put it. Um, or they could potentially, the opportunities, they could be an enabler to actually, um, you know, deliver on uh, many cities and municipalities transportation policies and goals. Uh, if they are having trouble asserting that domain themselves, even though um, you know all of the common knowledge and information is out, like you mentioned, Donald Troop's book, uh, The High Cost of Pre mm -hmm. 
free parking, as well as others, if basically cities um, can uh, seek partners that uh, can help uh, price these uh, structures accordingly and then uh, generate a return that um, strikes that balance for a proper distribution and nudging of the actual uh, public space, then that is that is a quite an interesting opportunity. Um, there are two different arguments that that um, perhaps maybe private sector vendors should not be too much in charge of that because they might not have public transportation policy in their best interest. But I think it's yet to be seen. I think there's a lot of gray area. I certainly um, am not of any school of thought uh, personally. I think that there is enough uh, room for innovation to try to kind of uh, capture this uh, opportunity of, let's say not um, monetizing the curb, but uh, properly pricing the curb so that's uh, better balanced with, uh, you know, societal uh, gain and societal goals. So I think that's kind of uh, where we're landing on that one. Um, the next question I just wanted to kind of uh, chat about really quickly is around just kind of uh, general, I would say, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning is coming up a lot lately with a lot of interesting use cases, a lot of hype. Um, some use cases are more interesting than others. Certainly some of the stuff that we're working on, uh, my, my company assists to be is quite interesting in the field of uh, public transport. But I wanted to get your take on this in terms of how can AI machine learning help us to readjust mobility for the post-COVID city? This is more of a blanket question, but where do you see some of these, let's say opportunities or continuing with this theme of nudging where having better data-driven insights can help us uh, strike uh, a more sustainable, equitable, uh, resilient balance in let's say the mobility world as we're trying to kind of readjust to this new normal. Okay. Let's start with the notion that we have data. We have mountains of data. Public transport operators have decades of data. And certainly in the last few years, because they many of them have been recording, uh, you know, uh, through Wi-Fi, uh, uh, you know, how users are, are moving through the city and more data than they know what to do with. Indeed. And <laughs> that gets to, you know, the key competence of an AI or, or, or ML uh, uh, system where I put a task on that and say, listen, wade through this data, tell me, A, how can I better um, tailor my public transports, my public-private transport system, right? For me, public transport is anything that moves the public. So uh, I can include ride-hailing in that, I can include car-sharing in that, scooter-sharing, bike-sharing, um, uh, whatever. I can, I can include all of that into it as long as it's not the privately-owned uh, single-occupancy car. So... If my aim is to improve that network of public and private mobility operators, then I need to start with the data where and when are people and goods moving through our city. And no city will have enough human resources to wade through that data. You know, costs are always being cut uh, and, 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 and you know, will never be as efficient as having uh, machine learning kind of wade through that data and, and, and make recommendations and say, listen, um, you know, that bus line over there, 
not enough people are riding it, you can switch that maybe to a ride pooling or an on-demand service. Um, over there uh, is where you have three different operators op operating car share. Maybe you can nudge, maybe you can encourage them to, to go to that mobility desert over there in that other part of the city where there's just a new development coming up. And, and, and these people have a high propensity, a high desire even to uh, live a car-free life because of their demographics, because of their psychographics, because of the way um, uh, that they have uh, expressed themselves, maybe even on social media, maybe even through you know, their LinkedIn, Instagram, or whatever feeds, right? They've said, hey, um, I'd love to be able to live a car-free lifestyle, but I don't have the operators in front of my door. Now, is the city picking up on that? Probably not. Could it pick up on that? Absolutely. If it a, use the data that it already has, and B, starts uh, you know, scanning for additional data points and putting that through uh, uh, an ML system. Yeah, no, that's great. It, and it's about supply and demand, and it's about meeting uh, consumer preference and using historical data insights. You know, where is this, um, the historical travel patterns, multimodality, uh, training your uh, machine learning model, your algorithm, to actually come up with better predictions for these different modal preferences and then kind of rebalance your uh, digital infrastructure as well as your phys physical infrastructure. So it's not just uh, operational budgets, but capital budgets and capital investments mm -hmm. for future, uh, let's say, bike networks, uh, multimodal uh, mobility hubs, as well as other types of investments that we're seeing in this uh, COVID and post-COVID era where AI machine learning could help better inform uh, engineers, designers, planners, and others who are really trying to remake our post-COVID city, at least here in Europe and the UK, but uh, certainly North America and globally. And I think that that's really the opportunity is to understand that real traveler and passenger demand historically to make better predictions from a multimodal perspective, understand these uh, consumer preferences, and then just make a better decisions uh, upon the data we already have. And the data, like you mentioned, is sitting in silos and GIS systems. It's sitting in ticketing systems. It's sitting everywhere, but it's not actionable. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's actionable from one specific tool, but I think that's the missing link where this is a really interesting use case or opportunity that I think will take us to uh, more, uh, let's say, smarter investments not necessarily in the, the smart city, because I don't want to use that uh, cliche or term anymore, but um, the city that's more human centric, the, the post-COVID city that is using the best of technology like AI machine learning for more human centric development and uh, sustainable outcomes, really. So that's something I'm very excited about as well. <laughs> um, so our final question here, and then we'll kind of uh, round it off with some closing thoughts, uh, kind of getting back to what you're working on um, at Split as, as well as Super Apps, but it just in general in the mobility mixes. Let's look at where we're at right now in, in uh, micromobility because we're having we're having a really interesting year right now in terms of things happening in Eastern Europe. Uh, we have inflation, we have supply chain, all these things converging in 2021, 2022, post-COVID and how it's impacting micromobility. So if you have a crystal ball, where do you see micromobility, um, let's say in the next 12 months in 2023? Because we're going through a massive period of disruption right now in kick scooter and bike share specifically. Three things. One is better infrastructure. The second link to better infrastructure is more use. There's a direct correlation between the infrastructure, safe infrastructure for bike and scooter use 
um, and use uh, of those modes within, uh, within cities. And the third is increased regulation. Uh, the simple fact is that cities are still um, allowing, uh, for better or for worse, uh, lots and lots of operators to come into the city, uh, drop off uh, bikes and scooters. I personally have less of a problem with that, but it, it creates a it, it creates a discourse that they that they really should should want to avoid, right? Mm -hmm. There was a there, there, there was a whole discussion in here in London with um, the city coming in, the the borough of Westminster coming in, and then picking up bikes and scooters off the streets and saying they're polluting our pavements, polluting our sidewalks, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I keep thinking, well, really, surely the bigger evil must be the cars and Art. delivery vans that are parked <laughs> on, the, on the sidewalks and the pavements and all of the other things. Um, but uh, but no, they seem to uh, seem to want to go after the bikes and the scooters. Yeah. Um, but uh, but but uh, either way, there will be more regulation around where the vehicles can be parked. Uh, in other words, there will be dedicated yes. bays for the vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be limitations uh, on how many operators can be in a city. More and more cities uh, are going to, uh, you know, have a permit type system, a licensing type system for scooters and, and closed market bikes. Yep. Yep. Um, and 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 thirdly, uh, and and I welcome this as well, uh, is that they need to have a data exchange um, with uh, with these operators. Uh, a few cities have have required this. In other words, they provide the data into the city. Where are the vehicles parked? How are the vehicles being used? Um, so, so there is going to be more regulation, uh, but that's ultimately going to take us to, I don't know, call it micro mobility 3.0, a world where uh, we'll have the streets, the safe lanes to use and to park uh, electric scooters and bikes. Um, and, and, and that will enable uh, and empower people to to, to use them. Finally, uh, and this all you know this goes without saying, electrification of of shared bikes. We still have cities that uh, have you know regular pedal bikes, and that's fine. That attracts maybe five percent, maybe ten percent of the population of a city. And I'm not talking about Copenhagen or Amsterdam or any of the very very bike heavy, mostly flat cities. Yeah, um, I'm talking about the wider population who doesn't want to break a sweat when they go, go to the office that has to encounter a few hills on their way to the office or a meeting or, a, or, or the theater or wherever they happen to be going school um, uh, or a restaurant. Um, and, and, and also enabling longer distances. I think the e-bike just has a, a, a wider um, radius. Uh, yeah. Radius, yeah, 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 and, and more more increased value capture. Uh, so I think that you have a much larger pool of potential uh, users and customers with with that opportunity. If cities were to really kind of align their policies to um, uh, promote those types of uh, you know uh, e bike sharing uh, systems, uh, as well as um, sharing schemes, whether they're publicly funded or subsidized or operated by the mm -hmm. private entities, as well too. Those are some really interesting trends. Um, I think. Thinking about uh, micro, or, yeah, back to micro mobility being much more uh, regulated and controlled, as well as aligned with uh, technology and safety is another thing too. Um, just kind of adding to that point, we're seeing some interesting tech vendors out there, uh, kind of let's say integrating their technologies, whether it's full stack or kind of uh, off the shelf 
into micromobility devices to uh, help align with right. um, uh, public safety goals. I think that's a more increasing requirement of these closed um, closed permit systems where the let's say the tenders and the RFPs are more stringent and they're uh, requiring more of the operators. So I think that's even another uh, area of interest. But all of this is aligned. These are all positive outcomes. So maybe we'll see fewer sc scooters, but they'll be used more often. And I think that they'll play a much uh, stronger role in this kind of modal shift uh, theme that we're talking about in the post-COVID world. So I think it's very, um, very exciting. We're moving away from the Wild West laissez-faire you know, world, uh, Adam Smith world to a little bit more of the, maybe the John Maynard Keynes world of uh, scooter share, maybe not quite that extreme, but the government is going to take a more, uh, you know, central role. And I think that uh, it'll, it'll be really exciting to see where we land, let's say in the next uh, 12 months. So yeah, thanks for your thoughts on that. Um, so really quickly, I have a few minutes left just to kind of round out. I just want to get your closing thoughts and where you see, let's say, in terms of back to the theme of shared mobility. So um, kind of looking at all these different offers, whether it's mobility as a service, uh, on-demand, or we call it microtransit North America, um, as well as micromobility autonomy, what 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 are gonna be, let's say at the losers, what, what do you think are gonna be the winners in the next uh, 12 to 24 months? What, what do you think has the, the most promise um, based upon what you've, you've seen and heard? Any city, any operator, any company, startup, legacy, who makes life simple is going to win. The success of the automobile over the last century has been because we've quite literally paved the way for people taking the key out of their pocket, having the car parked in front of their door, being able to drive wherever they want to go in a direct route, being able to park directly in front of the door of, of, of their destination uh, and leaving the car there. It doesn't get simpler than that. Multimodality comes with some inbuilt challenges and our job, our role is to remove those challenges, remove the hurdles and make life simpler for the end user. It's not even necessarily a question of cost. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's a question of simplicity, ease of use, and comfort. In many cities, it's already faster to use a bike or a scooter to get from A to B. Heck, it's even easier to use public transport in many cities. But people will still use the car because of the ease of getting into the vehicle and the, the uh, you know, obvious parking spot that's in front of their destination. And that's a that's that's just frankly an absurdity we need to do away with, but we do away with it by creating alternatives that are easy to use and make people want to do that. And it takes public and private interaction. It takes public and private partnership. Uh, and it takes business models that focus on the user, on the human and not on uh, the technology. Yeah. Yeah, the, the user first and the technology comes later. So we cannot have uh, solutions looking for problems, but we actually have to identify the problems first. Um, so in your final thoughts, uh, where can um, the audience find you? Um, on social media, as well as all, all different types of channels. So my my rants come on uh, Twitter at L Neckerman, Neckerman with two N's. 
most people can find me certainly on uh, on LinkedIn as well. Uh, just find Lucas with a K, Neckerman with two N's. Um, and you can uh, find me on those two channels primarily. Uh, you can find some speeches I've done on YouTube and, and other places, but uh, generally you'll find me. And I'm sure you'll be speaking soon at uh, upcoming conferences, events. So we'll probably see you there as There's well. There's a few planned, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll see you there. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Lucas. It's been a real pleasure for our second episode of the City's First podcast. Uh, we're really excited to get this uh, episode up, uploaded and uh, shared with everyone on the usual channels, uh, such as uh, Spotify, Apple, Google, YouTube, as well as RSS. So look for this uh, podcast very soon. And thank you very much, everyone. Thanks, Lucas. Thanks for having me, Scott. Been a great pleasure. Thank you.